following sermon audio. The following sermon audio. The following sermon audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. Good afternoon, everyone. Before I start today's sermon, I have a, a confession, which is uh, an interesting way to uh, start a sermon. I've been doing a lot of reading about today's theme and about uh, the parables that uh, Jesus taught. And, uh, well, let me say that uh, I've done more reading than what I, I would normally do. And I've come across some really interesting articles and books and uh, commentaries about how Jesus used the, uh, the parables to teach his followers. And so uh, today's message that I'm going to share with you is not based on any of my uh, profound insights into uh, uh, the subject of humility and pride, but rather on a book that I came across by Gary Inrig, uh, who wrote a book called The Parables. And uh, this has really given me a, a, a far greater appreciation and understanding of uh, the parables in, in general. But first, today I'd like to start with uh, a story, a golf story, that I believe that even uh, the non-golfers amongst us uh, will appreciate. And that's the story of uh, Arnold Palmer recounting a, a lesson that he learned many years ago uh, when he was playing the Masters tournament. And it goes, it was the final hole of the 1961 Masters tournament. Now, for the non-golfers, the Masters is one of the uh, four majors that uh, professional golfers play every year. And it is the dream and aspiration of absolutely every single professional golfer to, to be able to win a major tournament. And the Masters is one of, this, one of those, uh, those tournaments. And also appreciate that a, a, a tournament gets played over four days, 18 holes a day, so 72 holes in total. So here's Arnold walking down the final hole of the final day of the Masters tournament in 1961. And he said, I had a one-stroke lead. And a one-stroke one lead means that he was in the lead and basically he just had to make par on the final hole and he would win the Masters. And he says that he had just hit a very satisfying tee shot and I felt that I was in pretty good shape. And as I approached my ball, I saw an old friend standing on the edge of a gallery. He motioned me over and he stuck out his Congratulations. I took his hand and shook it, but as I did so, I knew that I'd lost focus. On my next two shots, I hit the ball into a sand trap, and then I put it over the edge of the green. I missed the putt, and I lost the Masters. You don't forget a mistake like that. You just learn from it, and you become determined that you'll never do it again. And I haven't in the 30 years since. So this afternoon, I'd like to talk to you about a subject that is very well documented in the Bible. And it's something that I claim absolutely no mastery over, and that's the subject of pride. But what is pride? Pride means to have a high or inordinate opinion of one's own dignity, importance, merit, or superiority, whether as cherished in your mind or as displayed through your conduct. Phew, I hear you say, 
thank goodness I don't fit that description. Yeah, but I certainly can think of a few people who, who would benefit from listening to this message. But be careful, because pride shows up just when we're least expecting it, and it shows up in each and every one of us. And if you think about it, there are so many sins out there that can be attributed to, to pride. And with this, I'm thinking about when somebody cheats, what they're actually saying is, I can't get caught. It's okay. It serves my need. When a person lies, what they're really saying is that, I don't want to tell the truth because I'm afraid that it's going to make me look bad. And when, when somebody commits adultery, what they're doing is actually acting out of a mentality that says, I want what somebody else has, and I'm not going to stop until I get it. Pride is also very competitive by nature. Competitive in the sense that you'll stop at nothing to make sure that you're always on the winning side. Not wanting to look inferior. Or that you'll stop, you won't stop at anything to make sure that you are seen to be the most important. Or the prettiest in the room. Or the most successful. And pride also has a number of really close relations or good friends. And here I'm thinking about arrogance, haughtiness, conceitedness, insolence, pomposity, egotism, self-importance, smugness, vanity, self-admiration, and the list goes on. To live for the moment is the prevailing passion to live for yourself, not for your predecessors or posterity. These are the words used by Christopher Lash to describe Western society way back in 1979 in a book that he wrote called The, the, the Culture of Narcissism. And little has happened since to challenge his observation that self-absorption is the climate to contemporary society. Christopher Lash died in 1992, a good few years before the, uh, the internet boom and the rapid rise of social media and, self and smart smartphones, smart devices. And so I wonder sometimes what his thoughts would have been on the phenomenon of Twitter and Facebook, Instagram, the notorious selfie, and society's ever-growing obsession with fame, celebrity, fortune. But let me stop there. Am I implying that there's something wrong with social media or with selfies? No, not at all. I happen to think that it's a fantastic communication tool to keep in touch with friends, family, to revive old friendships, past acquaintances, and to be kept up to date with what's happening in the world around you. But what I am saying is that what we need to do is evaluate the motivation behind the pictures that we take and the updates that we make and the messages that we post. Another question that you may be asking is, are all forms of pride necessarily bad? And the Bible actually speaks about a good form of pride, a form of pride where you're taking pride in the, uh, the people who are living in obedience to God's word. So there's an example from uh, Corinthians 7, verse, verse 4, where Paul is speaking about his joy and pride over the church in Corinth for their act of repentance. And he says, 
I've spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I'm greatly encouraged. In all my troubles, my joy knows no bounds. And the difference between positive pride and negative pride I can sometimes, well, it's knowing what the difference is behind it that can be sometimes uh, quite tricky or the difference can be very subtle. So let me give you an example that's, uh, that's close to home. Uh, being a parent of uh, two boys, it has happened you know, every so often that I, I get a compliment about one of them. And uh, I can think of one particular comment of uh, somebody who came up to me to say, oh, it was such a pleasure to have your son uh, in class today. He is so respectful and uh, he's so well-mannered. I thought, are you, are you really talking about my son? But as, as any parent, it's wonderful to, to receive compliments like that. And you can't but help feel pride in receiving a compliment like that. But now, look at the motivation behind the pride. The negative form of pride would be, hey, well done, Simon. You've done a fantastic job with raising those boys. Hmm, good on you. Keep going. That would be a negative uh, uh, sort of attitude to, wait, to take towards pride. The positive uh, pride would be, I'm so proud of them for doing what was right, for showing respect to their elders and showing respect for those who are in authority. So you're really proud of them for doing the right thing. And that's really essentially the difference. Is it others orientated or is the pride directed towards self? And as our society moves ever increasingly away from biblical roots, there are many forces that conspire to fill the place that most societies reserve for God with self. Values are determined by ideas like loving yourself is the greatest love of all, or I need to feel good about myself, or I owe it to myself. Self has become the ultimate source of truth and value, and we are told that the answer is found in our self-esteem or just having a really positive self-image. Humanists, paradoxically or confusingly, strip us of our true dignity as creatures who are created in the image of God when they insist that there is nothing higher or more dignified than human existence. The human self, they claim, is the source of true value and is also responsible for defining our own morality. The human self, they claim, <coughs> sorry, the, the New Age movement who have a different uh, view on the world but sing along to a similar anthem, they say, find the God within. God is in everything. There is no God that is out there. Discover your inner divinity and the awesome power of self. And there are even some popular Christian preachers who sing along with their version of the song that your real problem is not sin or rebellion against God, but a loss of self-esteem. You feel unworthy of God's love when your real need is just to believe how great you are as the sons and daughters of God living on this planet. The tunes may differ, but the message remains the same. The goal of life is happiness in itself. But let me also state that what we think and believe about ourselves is also 
very important. I mean, of course it is important to have a positive self-image and self-esteem. And these concepts within themselves are not necessarily wrong. But the way that God gives us significance to ourselves is totally different from the way that the world does it. Only when God is truly seen for who he is are we able to see ourselves for who we are. Meaning in life comes only when it is theocentric. In other words, when it's, when it's God-centered and not egocentric when it's centered on self. And this is a truth that is uh, expressed or presented really well in the, the parable of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector, which is found in Luke 18, verses 9 to 14, if you want to follow in your Bible. And Jesus uses this, this uh, uh, parable to first illustrate what pride looks like in the Pharisee, and secondly, what humanity looks like. And he then sums it up in a single sentence about what God's view is of these attitudes. So let's read together. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. If we look at the first few verses of Luke 18, it's about the parable of the persistent widow, and it's where Jesus has been teaching his disciples about prayer. The parable of the persistent widow is, is given to the disciples to teach them to pray with boldness and pray with confidence because they are God's chosen people. Whereas this parable warns against a totally different kind of attitude. It warns against boldness that is arrogance and confidence that is impudence. Luke explains in verse 9 that Jesus was addressing some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on every, everyone else. In the story, the Pharisee clearly represents uh, this attitude. And while this first first century group of, of Jews may have deserved the characterization, they are by no means uh, unique. David Myers is a, a very well-known social psychologist in the US, and he recently, well, a few years ago, wrote an article about a phenomenon known as the self-serving bias, which in a nutshell is what we think about ourselves. So this is where we will accept more responsibility for successes than failures or for good deeds than bad. And in his article, he gives an example of 829,000 high school students who were surveyed in a college board uh, survey, asking them about how they perceive themselves compared to others. And interestingly, 0% of themselves saw themselves as below average. 
and 60% of themselves saw themselves in the top 10% in the ability to get on with others. And so Myers concludes that the most common error in people's self-image is not an unrealistically low self-esteem, but rather self-serving pride. Not an inferiority complex, but a superiority complex. But this is also not to deny that we don't at all, in some point in our lives, struggle with a sense of being inferior or feeling inadequate. But what it does say is that we are all characterized by pride, selfishness, and in many cases, an attitude of superiority towards others. So the people in the Lord's audience were confident of their own righteousness, and the foundation of their self-confidence was based on themselves. And this is a common characteristic of all human-centered systems of self-esteem. For these first-century Jews, this confidence extended into their, with, in, into their relationship with God. That, so because of their religious deeds, in their eyes, they were being uh, deemed righteous in, in the sight of God. But of course, in today's world, people are far less concerned about God than they are about themselves. And these days, the goal is not so much a divine approval as approval of self. Feeling good about myself. And the general secular trend is to assume that by default, we are good. And that is just, <clears throat> and that's just that we need to get in touch with our feelings, to find our true selves and to realize the full potential of our human natures. Humanists say, there is no deity, trust humanity. So there is no God, trust in humans. Cosmic New Age humanism tells us, humanity is deity, trust the God within. And to quote a New Age guru, we are perfect exactly the way that we are, and when we accept that, life works. So although the roads differ, the final destination remains the same. Whether it's the path of performance religion, secular rationality, or new age psychotechnology, the conclusion is that based on ourselves, we are righteous, or put together, or self-actualized. But, but scripture shows us that claims such as these are delusional. It overlooks the basic fact that human nature is deeply and unalterably sinful. No amount of good works or religious deeds or religiosity can remove our guilt before God. Obviously, the story that the Lord is telling is directed to people who as first century Jews would most probably be really offended and angered to be compared with humanists and with uh, New Age mystics these days. And although the differences are obvious between those, those groups, what's important is to recognize the similarity, which is being the self has been placed on the throne where only God belongs. But now the answer is not to go and cultivate an attitude of inferiority or subservience. But it's really about reaching a point from which we can look and properly see things for the way that they actually are. And this is the point of the story Jesus tells 
of the two men who entered the temple that day to pray. So let's start with the Pharisee. These days, the Pharisee has some very negative connotations attached to it. But this was not the case in the first century. In the first century, I mean, a Pharisee was the absolute pinnacle of Judaism. They were deeply religious laymen, committed to upright behavior and religious tradition. They were highly respected by the general public as good men. They cared deeply about spiritual matters, but their fundamental religious assumptions stood in direct opposition to God's compassion that was embodied in the person of Jesus. When the man comes to the temple, he is coming to his place to do his thing. He is a religious man who feels very comfortable in a religious setting. Standing to pray was then, and still is, a common posture. And it wasn't unusual, even now, to pray aloud so that others could actually hear your prayer. So none of this was unexpected or unusual. Yet in one simple diagnostic phrase, Jesus exposes the condition of the Pharisee's heart. Here is a man praying about himself, or maybe it should be rephrased to, to himself. Prayer is meant primarily for, uh, to be God-centered, but here is a man with an eye problem. And because his prayer is about himself, it is actually to himself and not to God at all. There is no expression of praise, of thanksgiving, or worship. And it shows no concern for who God is and for what he has done. Instead, his, his prayer is disguised as self-congratulation. It shows little sense of being in the awesome presence of the holy God or the reverence that brings him to his knees, at least in spirit. Instead, he stands tall, convinced that he belongs in a class all of his own, towering above the others. He is impressed, not by what he is like compared to God, but what he's like compared to others. To robbers, evildoers, adulterers, tax collectors. What the man tells about himself in his prayer would be most impressive to members of a religious society. The Old Testament requires fasting once a year, and for the Pharisees it required fasting once a week. Here was a man who did this twice a week. The Old Testament also imposed a tithe on one's income. And here this man tithes on all that he gets, so all that he acquires, which amounts to basically a double, a double tithe. And here is a man who not only does good, lawful things, but does them in a way that goes far beyond what the requirements are. He is an upright man, very certain of his uprightness. And Jesus gives no indication that the man's prayer was actually factually incorrect. So Jesus in no way is implying that uh, the man was lying. So what was wrong with his prayer? And there are basically three things. The first, he had an inflated sense of self. So he was guilty of pride and being self-centered, revealing a blindness to his personal position before a holy God. He may have used pious words and done many good religious deeds, but he had no appreciation for his true sinfulness. Secondly, he displayed a deflated sense of God. So his prayers lacked praise, confession, petition. He was not truly in the presence of, of God, awed by the divine majesty, but was in the presence of people, 
impressed by his supposed superiority. And third, he had a distorted sense of values. His focus was on what he did and not who he was, on his conduct and not on his character. Even in God's presence, he could not explore below the surface of the life to see, of his life to see who he truly was. But there was another person who came into the temple to pray that day, a tax collector. His reputation was the polar opposite of the Pharisee. He, considered, he was considered a traitor to the Jews, classed as a robber by the righteous and shunned by the respectable. Tax collectors worked for the Romans and had a well-deserved reputation for being corrupt and dishonest. They were usually corrupt personally and unclean religiously. But now whether or not this man deserved this reputation is not stated, but his position and his posture reveals a man who wants to come into God's presence, but he feels profoundly unworthy. He stands at a distance, and that is to say that he stands on the fringes, as far as possible away from the holy place, and from the place where the Pharisee confidently stands. His eyes are downcast, the body language of guilt, and he beats his breast in a well-known gesture for sorrow and grief. Everything about him speaks of humility, brokenness, repentance. Here is a man who has no illusions about who he is or what he is like. His prayer is hardly a prayer, but it's more a cry from the heart, six words in Greek, literally translated, O God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He has not come to recount his merits, but to meet God. There is a sense of desperation. We do not know what led to his failure to speak of himself in such terms. But what we do know is that he knows that God does not forgive excuses. God only forgives sin. And he is also aware that only the grace of God could possibly meet his needs. Here is a man who can see nothing in himself but sin and and who seeks nothing of God but atoning mercy. He has no interest in comparing himself with anyone or with anything apart from God. But Jesus doesn't let this parable hang in the air. He wants to make sure that uh, the listeners of this uh, audience do not draw their own conclusions. And he wants there to be no doubt about his message that I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God. And if we read that statement carefully, the tax collector did not go home feeling justified or made righteous. The word justified means declared righteous. And used here, it tells us that God not only forgave his sin, but put this man into a right relationship with himself. God the judge did this in view of Christ's death on the cross that would come, which dealt totally and eternally for the sins of those who trust in him. And this becomes the great promise of the New Testament, that sinful people who trust in Christ are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That's in Romans 3, verse 24. But it was also a great tragedy of the Pharisees 
Because in Romans 10 verse 3 it says, Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Justification is impossible for those who are, who are confident in their self-righteousness. Their image, their self-images may be vigorous. Their self-confidence really impressive. Their self-concepts well-established. But it's all a delusion of self-deception. Until we see ourselves in the light of God's holiness, God's gracious forgiveness in Christ, our self-images are built on a foundation of sand. The Pharisee was effectively wasting his time. In verse 7, uh, 11, it stands, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. His religion was empty, his prayers were hollow, and his boasting was foolish. Unless he bowed his heart before God in repentance and dependence, he could not experience the forgiveness and the justification that comes from God. The tax collector, however, came in humility, with utter dependence on God, and as a result experienced the truth as is written in the second half of verse 11, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So, some concluding thoughts. Jesus' parable was not designed to teach us a formula of the tax collector's prayer, a formula that we can use before God. The Lord wants us really to have the tax collector's heart, a heart that's sensitive to sin and is totally dependent on God's grace. This is where salvation begins, with the humble receiving of God's gift of forgiveness through Christ. And if there's one thing I'd like you to, to take away from the, the message today, if you think about it sometime next week, is the answer to one question. Why is pride a problem? It's a problem because it stops us from developing a meaningful relationship with God. If you do not know Christ, and if Christ is not your Savior, and you are an unbeliever, pride will stop you from entering into a relationship with God. Until you humble yourself, you cannot enter or be justified or be made righteous through God's eyes. And if you already are a believer in Christ, pride is going to be a hindrance to growing a deep and meaningful relationship with God. So pride is a, is a showstopper. And that's the one thing I'd like you to think about. So as I go into this week, how do I recognize telltale signs that pride has maybe crept into my life? And here are a few examples. An erratic or inconsistent prayer life, which may suggest that I'm not actively relying on God or, or that I'm not aware of my need of Him. Weariness, which is often the result of trying to do more than what God intends which means that I'm not letting him order my day for me. Anger can mean that I'm not trusting God's sovereign plan and timing, and I'm trying to wrestle control of my life back from him. A critical spirit, the sorry act of bringing others down while lifting myself up, often pointing to an inflated sense of self. A defensive reaction to criticism, despondency after failure, and the inability to laugh at my own mistakes all suggest that I'm taking myself too seriously and thinking maybe of myself a little too highly. Not acknowledging God in my success, accomplishment, or financial prosperity may mean 
that I've lost sight of God's gracious provision. And one for me, impatience. Impatience having to listen, wait, serve, be anonymous, or be led by somebody else. Please visit www.fibc.vk. I think of myself on the road with traffic speed limits. Unwillingness to associate with or get to know certain people. Thank you people for listening. Who do, not, who do not live up to your standards. These are all indications that possibly pride has crept into your life. So how do you deal with it? And there are three things you can do. The first step is to recognize it. Recognize that it exists. The second is to repent. Remember, do something about it before God does. God will humble those who exalt themselves. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal areas in your life where you may be susceptible to pride. And the third thing, ready yourself to fight it every day. Paul encourages us in the book of Romans 12 verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do this daily. Read your Bible. And most importantly, turn knowledge into action. So act upon what you read. Humility is the way of life in the kingdom of God. Humble people are not people who walk around with large inferiority complexes or constantly putting themselves down. Instead, they are people who accept God's evaluation for their lives. They know that they are sinners, unworthy and helpless. Yet at the same time, that they know that by God's grace, they are made righteous, exalted to God's full membership in his eternal family. When we see ourselves in the light of God's forgiveness and his justification, that is when we have a healthy view of who we really are. Self-fulfillment, which is the act of living out your or fulfilling your ambitions, your dreams, and your desires, does not come from being self-absorbed or worshipping at the God of self. To know God truly, to bow before him humbly, and to believe him gladly, these are the pillars of a godly and realistic self-image. Let us pray together. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.dk or facebook.com forward slash FIBC CPH. Thank you for listening.